Welcome to 4D. Deep dive into degenerative diseases. Gaining insights through casual and amusing clinical conversations. Welcome to 4D, a podcast brought to you by the ANPT Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group. I'm Parm Paget, a physical therapist, and I serve as secretary of the DDSIG. I'm here today with Dr. Patty Sheets, Vice President of Quality and Clinical Outcomes at Infinity Rehabilitation and President of the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy. So Patty, we are very excited to have you here as our guest, and I'd like you to just take a couple of seconds to introduce yourself. Thanks, Parm. I really appreciate the opportunity to be a part of your uh, podcast series. They've been fun to listen to, and so I'm, I'm really pleased to uh, participate and be a part. Um, so thanks for the invitation. Let's see a little bit about me. I feel like I've been a neuro-PT my entire career. I ended up kind of joining the neuro section, which it was then, because a colleague of mine at a combined sections meeting said, here's a meeting that you should go to and kind of took me um, to uh, a meeting of the neuro section. It was very different then. And I thought, this seems like this is pretty fun. And so I joined and have been a part really ever since. And I've been really pleased with the opportunity to be involved in all sorts of ways with ANPT activities and, and to kind of get to know the organization and the association from a variety of of vantage points. I decided to run for president because it just seemed like it was the thing to do next. And I'm now in the first year of my second term as president. How long is the term? It's a three-year term. All of the elected positions are three-year terms. So it will be a total of six years that you'll be president. Yeah. Yeah, and I was on the board as vice president for one and a half terms um, before that, too. So it's been a really fun time to be a part of the board of the academy. Uh, during that time we that I've been a part, we've changed from a section to an academy. And then we've just grown so much during this period. We've grown in membership, and we've also really grown significantly in the breadth, and I would say the depth of activities um, that we do as an academy. So it's been a really fun time to be involved. Yes. Yeah. Well, we've certainly noticed changes, and it's been exciting to be a part of. I agree. Let's just take a few minutes to talk about your professional life. I'm curious about sort of what you do more on a day-to-day basis. Are you more of an administrative type person? Do you have a clinical practice? Yeah, that's a great question, Parma. I have a real, I think it's a really fun job. I've been with Infinity Rehab about six years. And when I started with them, Mike Billings, who's a PT, who was the president um, of the of the company at that time, knew that he wanted to do something about the quality of care that was being delivered in skilled nursing. That's where we have the bulk of our business, although we're now just growing into that home health outpatient arena. My job has really been to establish our quality and clinical program for the company. So we really had the vision of practice-based evidence. The way that practice-based evidence is set up was really our guiding vision. So we wanted to start with implementing a core set of outcome measures. So we have a standard set of outcome data that we collect on all of our patients in skilled nursing. 
which has allowed us to amass a pretty significant database of well over 40,000 patients, older adults. And then with that, of course, we've been able to study that data and kind of see and learn things about those patients. And over time, then, once you start getting a little data, then you want a little more data. So we've been trying to collect data on the kinds of services that we're providing to patients, specific interventions that we're providing. And at the same time, we've been trying to translate and really develop standards of care for rehabilitation. Um, We started in PT and OT, but we now have a number of specific practices for which there's significant body of evidence in a general older adult population that we've really Um, built into standards of care. So if you have goals for walking and you are one of our patients, we do have a series of interventions that we try to provide consistently to to try to improve walking speed. So it's been really fun to try to do this, not just at one or two sites, but at over 150, sometimes 100, up to as many as 180 sites. So it's a pretty big scale activity. And it's been fun to figure out how to try to do that, how to get messaging consistent, how to develop practices that you can implement consistently with people that are all over the country. Um, So that's, that's what I do during my day job. Yeah. I have to say, when I saw your title, I was like, that is awesome. I love that title. (laughs) Like, like we need more of these, right? We need more people that are doing this quality and clinical outcomes. Like I just, yeah, I was just, what was so appealing to me um, when I first interviewed with Infinity for this job was really just the vision of the leadership to be able to see that this was really important. You know, as we move into this value-based reimbursement, truly trying to ensure that we really are delivering on that value proposition. And um, and it's really been a fun thing to be a part of. So there's two things that I want to take a little bit of a deeper dive on. One is that you mentioned a core set of outcomes. And I know that people are going to want to know what are those core sets? Sure. So a couple of thoughts, particularly as to this audience, is that our population is a general geriatric population. So patients with neurological conditions are a relatively small subset of that population. So when we went looking for measures and we started before the core outcome CPG was out, um, we really looked more in the general geriatric literature. So the measures that we collect are we collect the short physical performance um, battery, which was developed by the National Institutes of Aging. From that, we also study the individual, a couple of individual items. We look at gait speed and report that. We also look at the ordinal score of the repeated chair stand. So basically for our population, just can you get out of a chair even one time without using your hands seems to be an important variable. And then we also collect the six-minute walk test. We collect grip strength. Um, We've recently started doing um, a self-efficacy with daily activities tool as a surrogate for a, a engagement or activation measure. We use the slums not as an outcome measure, but as a way to stratify patients when we look at our outcome data. 
And then this year, we are on our speech side, working with the ACE-3, the Addenbrook Cognitive Evaluation, um, as a tool that'll look at a few of the domains of cognition, as well as a promise tool for disrupted swallowing. So we're trying to get some measures that you could say are at the impairment level, also at the activity limitation level, and a little bit at the participation level, um, so that when we look at our outcomes from rehabilitation, we're kind of covering the whole gamut. Well, thank you. I know people will be curious about that. The other thing that might be new for people that you just sort of mentioned, but I think is worth talking about a little bit is practice-based evidence. We're so used to hearing evidence-based practice that when you flip it, it, it's kind of interesting. And for I think for the clinicians out there among us is really kind of where sometimes our frustration lies and where we want more done is this practice-based evidence. So what do you mean by that? Well, it's kind of funny as you mentioned that because I first learned about practice-based evidence at the three-step conference. So again, another one of those gifts to my life that came from the Neuro Academy. Um, And it was the last day of the three-step conference and it was Susan Horn presenting her work on practice-based evidence. Really this idea was the first that I had actually personally heard of it where we have randomized controlled trials that are controlled experiments. But the other idea is that we also have this experiment going on every day and it's called clinical practice. And so what can we learn from clinical practice? And the promoters of this uh, methodology and research would say it's on par with an RCT as far as its strength goes. But like an RCT, there are requirements that you need, right? So there are certain things you have to have. So you have to have standardized outcome measures. So that was like foundational for us when we started to think about that. You had to have a way to stratify your patients into different categories so that when you're looking at a category of patients, you feel like you've got a similar type of patient in each of those groups. You have to have a way to actually understand what you did with them. So some way of measuring the interventions that you provided. And then the fourth was you had to have large numbers. Um, So this is the type of thing that it's very difficult for a single facility to do, but in a, a bis, you know, in a company such as ours where we are able to aggregate data across many, many sites, we can get a pretty large number of patients in a relatively short period of time. Um, so that was why, well, we've talked about it at Infinity, we kind of feel obligated, you know, <laughs> like because we have kind of at least the understandings of how to go about doing it. It's, it's still a matter of still trying to make it work in actual practice. Um, and certainly the most challenging piece has been to get a some way of measuring the care that you're actually providing. Right. The straightforward way is CPT code. Mm -hmm. But our feeling was that our CPT codes for rehabilitation are too broad. Like you can call anything Therax, right? Or anything therapeutic activities. So we've been trying to find ways to check off reporting of what was done, as well as linked to the standards of care that we're trying to be sure happen as well. So Then basically what you do, if you have all that data, you look at the patients who were in one category and you look at those that did well and those that did poorly. 
And then you look at the care that those those individuals received and you do more of the care in the group that did well and less of the care that the patients who did poorly received. Um, so that's kind of the concept of how do you improve practice um, from that type of work. Right. And I, and I think one of the um, helpful things about that is having the structure set up. So like to take it to the next step, fourth step, right? Where we were talking about genetics and the potential for genetics to help inform the kind of intervention. If you already have a system set up where you're collecting that data and now we're doing a little bit of genetics and you can add that in, it's going to be fairly quick to add in the latest and greatest and be able to stratify your patients that way and maybe gain some insights. It's huge. Exactly. It feels like we're a little far away from us having that type of information readily available to us in the clinic, but even taking a step far back from genetics, but more enriched perhaps like one of our next steps is to build more into our database about personal and environmental factors for patients. That's kind of one of our next steps because we kind of know that those have an impact at least on discharge disposition for sure, as well as other factors um, as well. And it may have an impact on overall outcome. So trying to get data around those aspects of patients to include into the data set. And then you're exactly right. When we get even more sophisticated information, it's just, you just put it into your database. Of course, I say that like it's simple, right? But it's all figuring out how do you make your electronic medical record a tool for more than for somebody to pay the bill um, and to use it as a learning tool as well. Right. And that's huge and hugely difficult, at least in my experience, the kinds of things that we have tried to do. It's just really hard to get that system that has the capability, but was built for a different reason. It doesn't always collect the data that you want, or it's not set up for the clinician to easily interact to provide that data. So then it's an extra step for the clinician that they may or may not take. And so there's so many variables in that. And then also we're all using different electronic medical records. And then as you acquire more, like I know here, we've sort of gone from our medical system to this network that includes other hospitals and other hospital systems, but everybody's on a different electronic system. So we're trying to get they're trying to get everybody kind of on the same one. And it's years, years and years of work. So it's tricky. Yeah, we just at the movement system task force that I am a part of, we just at our last meeting started throwing out this idea, like, you know, is this something we should get involved with, which is developing content for EMRs that says, here's a way to do a movement analysis. Here's some content. Use this, you know, because typically EMRs build their content with the end user in mind. And it makes sense. That's their customer. That's who they're selling to. But the question kind of comes, are there strategies that we could use as a professional organization or group to influence that, to put in place in front of clinicians things that would actually help practice be better, um, more fluid, as well as perhaps considered to be a data collecting tool too? Yeah, that would be awesome. So I'm curious about how you feel like your professional life kind of informs your work or approach to your work as president of ANPT. 
Yeah, that's a good question. I was really kind of nervous um, <laughs> when I ran for president and then got elected. You know, then you you get elected and you're like, oh, great, now what? <laughs> um, and partially because I wasn't, I, I don't work in the academic environment where so many of our leadership have been so successful in that environment and have such a tight linkage to understanding the academic process, the research community, just that whole world, which is very different than the world that I live in every day. But I decided to kind of embrace that difference and recognize that what I do have the opportunity to do with every day is at that kind of where the rubber meets the road, so to speak, where, where we're dealing every day with clinicians who are trying to solve individual patient problems. At the time, we were just moving into this knowledge translation kind of aspect of what we were trying to develop as an academy that was overlapping exactly with the work that I was doing. So on that piece, it feels like a really comfortable fit. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And certainly the other thing that we wanted to talk about, and I think that knowledge translation piece certainly comes across in the recent perspective paper called Moving Forward in JNPT. It's a great read. So if we have any listeners out there that haven't read it, I suggest you maybe pause your podcast right now, click on the link in the show notes and read it. It's it's not long, but I, I think it's very well laid out. But I'd just like to hear a little bit about the genesis of this moving forward paper and then uh, so how it came into being. Well, it really came from... Um, a couple of our board members really being tuned in to what was going on on the listserv. So in the summer, um, there was a, someone who posted on the listserv, what are you teaching when it comes to traditional approaches? What shouldn't I teach? You know, all of that sort of a thing. And boom, it just exploded. It was probably one of the most active conversations that I've seen on listserv. And what was very interesting about it is that the discussion was very similar to one that we had had about 12 years ago in response to Kathy Sullivan's um, president's perspective. And so it was really felt like it was time to at least point out <laughs> that we're having the same conversation. So have we moved anywhere? And particularly if you think about in the 12 years between Dr. Sullivan's president's perspective and this conversation on the listserv, it was a time of a lot of growth in our science. It was a really active period of research. And I think the that having that in the background of seeing this same conversation, that was really the impetus. So I really feel like in, in a lot of ways it was member driven <laughs> because there was so much member response um, to that question that the board felt like it was time to weigh in. A couple of members on the board really stepped forward to provide a lot of the, the initial writings. It was a very collaborative process, but as always in these things, you really need somebody to kind of take that leadership. And um, Dr. Hornby served as that person for us and was backed up by all of the other board members. So it felt like it was a really cohesive, collaborative project to try to get to a product that we were all comfortable with. And we, we had very different backgrounds as a group. And so we thought, okay, if we can all come to consensus, then it felt like it was the right thing to do. Right. So in looking at this paper, I'm curious what you think about why, like, why are we still having the same conversation 12 years later? <laughs> 
Yeah, we could ask ourselves that a million times over, right? Um, if there's one thing that I've learned in the work that I do every day is that it's really hard to change your practice habits. It's really, really hard. And and I also think like you feel like a student again, right? And, you know, it doesn't take you long in practice before you decide you don't really want to feel like a student anymore. You know, even within that first year, you're like, you gain so much confidence as a practitioner that to do something that's going to make you feel off your game is really disruptive to a certain degree to your whole identity. And I think that the fact that it's so difficult speaks to the fact of how like there's a chicken or the egg, right? Like it feels so uncomfortable to us because we don't do it very often. But if you do it more often, you actually feel more comfortable not being very good at things because you're learning and you're trying new things. And so I think if we can always just get folks just to try um, that, that's, that's an important factor. I think the other thing is, you know, we have a lot of tradition in the way we do things as practitioners and and we socialize that at work we, a number of years ago we had a chance to give a presentation to a group of students in Utah and at the time we were just developing a standard of care around doing gate speed training and it was a pretty simple thing we had data that showed that our older adult patients were walking more slowly than was ideal for them we had data that showed that if we did some specific things they walked faster <laughs> and like wouldn't it be good if we would systematically do these things so that they would be able to walk faster and have reduced risk of adverse events. These were third year DPT students. A professor asked how many of them would want to go work someplace where there were standards of care like that. What we discovered is they were super uncomfortable with the idea of someone taking away their autonomy. These were students. They weren't even practicing yet. And I mean, no fault on anyone's part, but with this whole like autonomy, autonomy thing, like, don't you fence me in with my decision making? How dare you restrict the choices that I make with my patients? That seems to get a really big response from us as a group of professionals, not just neuro folks, but um, in PTs in general. So we have that really built in. And when you think about it, we have a lot of autonomy, right? You know, we talked about how broad our CPT codes were. So once I get a referral, I can do whatever I want to with the patient by and large. And, um, and so that is a practice environment that allows every individual, I think, to develop their own personal practice behaviors. And it's hard to make those changes. Right. The other thing that I've heard that I think that this paper addresses really nicely is that we have been practicing sort of with the best knowledge that we had at the time. And I think one of the things I've heard from some clinicians who have been practicing for a long time is like, well, if I adopt these new principles or these new ideas, does that mean that the patient that I saw 20 years ago, I did a disservice to, and I, and like, now I see myself as a bad PT and I I get it. I understand that perspective, but also like, you know, what I think is, is well communicated in this president's perspective is this need to continually grow and to improve our practice because it might've been the best thing to do 20 years ago and you were doing the best you could then you need to keep doing the best you can now. And it's not a reflection of who you were then. Right. 
how sad for all of us and how sad for our whole healthcare system if we just held on to practices that we now um, knew were no longer. And, and so it's just so interesting to think that we wouldn't that we wouldn't grow and that we wouldn't learn to do new things. It certainly isn't what we expect from our medical providers. And I, I came into practice when um, medical management of a person who had a stroke due to an infarct was not standardized. And so on the acute neurology floor, we had docs who liked to keep blood pressures high, and we had docs who really tightly controlled blood pressures, and we had docs who, you know, were wanted to do this with an anticoagulant, and docs who did different things. And over time, of course, um, we have standards of care. There was a, this convergence of best medical practice for a person who experienced a stroke related to an infarct. And once that foundation was built, the medical management of stroke patients has only gotten better. And it was very interesting to me because I watched some of those physicians during that time struggle against these new practice guidelines. Of course, you know, as when you're standing on the sidelines, you're thinking, well, come on, the evidence says this is best, just change your behavior. And I feel like, um, you know, it's easy for us to fall into that same pattern, but you'd think that people on the outside looking in at us are going, come on, just change your behavior, just like we looked at those physicians, but it wasn't our practice that was being changed. And I think that people from the outside that are looking in at us now are going to look in the same way and, and potentially have the same judgment on us as well. That is such a great and interesting analogy. I, I really love it because I think it helps us, I think, to step out of our own way. Yeah, and well, and to recognize we're not the only folks in the healthcare world who are having to respond to changes in science. I mean, look at what we've just been through this year. I mean, you know, every day, mask on, mask not, you know, early on. Well, some folks can interpret that as we don't know what we're doing. From my perspective, it's like we were learning. Every day we're learning and we're changing our behavior in light of what we're learning. And I think that most of us who were in the practice environment during this past year recognize that. So I think to myself, what can we learn from our learning to go forth in how we've managed conditions that we've been seeing for years. We all knew we needed to learn because we hadn't seen COVID before. And so what can we take out of this to help us be better at how we manage the things that we feel like we already know about? Right. Yeah. That's an interesting perspective too. You know, I've noticed I work in an acute care setting and I see people hospitalized with COVID And in the second wave that came, I noticed a huge difference in the medical management of patients and better outcomes overall because of that improvement in the medical management of the things that we learned from that first wave. And I like using that as an example of we're used to learning in this environment. How do we take these principles and apply them to our everyday patients? Right, right. I can remember our, we would have these calls with an our clinician saying, here's this person whose SATs are in the, they're really low. They're way, way, way low. They're in the 80s and they're talking to me. You know, like that fascination of that renewed sense of, I don't know what to do here, but I'm going to learn. And I just think if we could carry some of that, like that's that's going to what's going to help spur us on if we can approach these changes and practice behaviors as exciting learning opportunities rather than i've got to change and i don't want to i think we can approach this in a much more positive 
in, in a much more enjoyable way. Yeah. And I think that's where the knowledge translation framework is so helpful because it really is promoting behavior change. And how do we do that? And and what I would love to see is some study, and maybe it's happening or going to happen of that. I mean, it is happening, right? There's There are people are sort of studying that knowledge translation. But I think we need more examples, more papers, more stories of success with implementing changes. And then I think, like you say, people, once they start changing, will be more open to continually learning and continually changing their practice. Yeah, yeah. I've been trying to get caught up a little bit on CSM presentations. And so I was just today listening to the KT Summit kind of summary of those things. And what was nice about listening to those was to just to hear folks' experience, because we do do some of this work. Um, it can be discouraging at times because you feel like, oh, you know, you're just kind of getting there one clinician at a time, one clinician at a time. And it was encouraging to hear other stories. And, and then you also learn from those stories. It makes me think that um, we have the opportunity to not only use knowledge translation efforts to change behaviors of folks who've been practicing for a period of time, but we also have the opportunity to look to newer clinicians to be leaders in that area. So students who are learning and, and clinicians who are new in their careers, who are learning these new um, intervention strategies while they're learning how to be a therapist at the same time, I really think that they can have the opportunity to really be leaders for the rest of us as well. I also think that there is a disconnect between researchers for whom some of these ideas and practices have been around in their world and their brains for a while, really thinking that clinicians are doing this stuff. And it just hasn't translated. And they're surprised, like, I can't believe people aren't using outcome measures is a great example. You know, they've been around for a long time. Yes. Yeah. And, And people are not regularly using them in their practice. Yeah. It's, it's always interesting to me. Um, the, probably the thing that helped us get outcome measures at least built into practice for a time where the G codes, right? It's it's when a payer requires it. That's when we do, you know, sometimes I think that's when we do some of our best thing is if we can get the payers to require some of the best beha- practice behaviors, then we will be adherent or compliant to it. I think that, I think the other thing, Parm, for me about why I think this is such an important thing now is, again, this year's been, this past year's been such kind of a reflective year. And it was so interesting to me, like we were classified as a profession to be essential healthcare workers, and we got access to telehealth services, which as a profession, we've been trying to accomplish uh, for a long time. So like, yay us. But at the same time, we're seeing, facing significant reimbursement cuts for Part B services, really significant. And, and you know, then you look at some of these other things, particularly in musculoskeletal, that receiving physical therapy gets kind of grouped in with the same group as massage therapy. And so I feel like we're, as a profession, we've got to figure out how to consistently demonstrate our value to the healthcare system. And I think that one of the advantages of 
thinking about bringing in best evidence care to our patients is then we do start establishing some standards of care so that payers can actually know what to expect from us and, and see the value that we are bringing. There was an Institute of Medicine report in 2013 that looked at variability in spending in post-acute care. And what they found in the report was that if you just reduce the variability in spending in post-acute care, you would reduce Medicare spending by 73%. So these are patients that in the CMS database they see as the same, total hip, total knee, but stroke is one of those conditions as well, okay? So let's not fool ourselves that it's only musculoskeletal, that these are conditions that they see as the same, and yet when they look at the care that these patients actually receive, it's exceedingly variable. And so what's going to happen is if we don't do our due diligence and really kind of get our act together and reduce some of the unwarranted variability by saying, let's do the things that we know the best right now work, let's do those first, <laughs> you know, let's, let's really commit ourselves. What payers do is they just reduce the amount of care that patients can get. And it's a global kind of across the board cut. And that's not in the best interest of our patients either. So I guess I just really feel a sense of urgency around this right now, because I feel like we're at kind of an important crossroads of really demonstrating to the healthcare system that we as professionals bring something unique that adds consistent value to the patient that they can count on. Mm -hmm. I think stroke is a super good example of that too, because something like a hip replacement, there's some variability in that population but not huge, right? But you could literally have a stroke and walk out of the hospital, or you could have a stroke and be totally dependent for care for the rest of your life. Exactly. So if we take the onus on collecting the kind of data that you're collecting, stratifying our patients, having a approach for those stratified patients that we know works or works to the best of our current knowledge, then we're in control of that story and we're not being controlled by the payer. Right. Right there with you, Parm. You know, and we've got a couple of task forces that are going to be formed, and we wanted to try to bring our members into the fold. We want to engage people in the conversation, but we also want to try to take this opportunity to say, let's not have the same conversation in another 12 years. Can we be in a different place? Yeah, and it, it, it's aptly titled. Oh, I'm so glad you said that. You know, what's so funny about the title farm is that um, we didn't have a title. And so we were putting it in, um, you know, into the system where you have to send your submissions to JMPT and it asks for a title. And I, I couldn't get past that line without a title. So I'm like, well, let's just call it moving forward. So I'm glad to hear you say that you like the title. <laughs> Yeah, that's perfect. And those little backstories, that's what we love here at the podcast. So I can't, I can't imagine that you have time to do anything besides your job and be president of the ANPT, but I hope that you do. So we like to ask here what people do when they are not working. 
Oh, gosh. Well, this year it's been a lot of dog walks. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's been the primary source of entertainment um, is to go in the morning and see what's going on in the neighborhood in the morning and then go back in the evening and see what's happened during the day. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's really been our primary source of fun and entertainment, strangely. Um, other than that, we kind of like to ride bikes. And my husband and I are both involved in our church and, you know, we're sing in the choir, all those kind of quiet act life type of activities. I like that the dog is sort of central to your daily getting out and lifestyle. Yeah, yeah. Perfect. My my. Now you probably don't remember Bewitched. Um, oh, so of course lovely. I do. Okay, so so my husband calls me Mrs. Kravitz because I'm the one that goes around and because when you when yeah. you walk the dog, you're like, well, so and so's painting their garage door. Yeah. <laughs> so-and-so got a pool and I don't even know the people's names but anyhow yeah it's uh it really is it's fun to have a dog because then you know people by their dogs not not their names you just know their dogs right it's fun so Patty it's been so great to talk to you we're very excited to have you here and to hear your perspective and to get to know the president of ANPT a little bit better so thank you so much for joining us Oh, Parm, thank you for the invitation. This has really been a lot of fun. So I really appreciate your time this evening. Thanks a lot. Thank you for joining us for this podcast. This podcast was produced and edited by the ANPT Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group podcast team. Our team includes Sarah Crandall, Katie McGraw, Adriana Carey, Mira Pierce. I am Parm Paget. Subscribe to our newsletter on the ANPT website, neuropt.org, or check us out on Facebook. And please share this episode with a colleague today. Thanks to Jimmy McKay for providing music. Should I have gone on and on about more about the thank you? Do I no. Have to, should I do? I can do more. Do you want to do it again? No, no, no. Are you sure? Okay. <laughs> I tend to go on and on in general. So then I thought, well, here I thought I should keep it court, uh, tight. So, okay. <laughs> I'm such a boring person. And now you're letting everybody who listens to this know that I am a really boring person. <laughs> I don't know. I beg to differ. I think you are the life of the myelin melter. Oh, <laughs> I definitely missed that this year.